This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, which is the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program that explains the benefits for Christianity and personal happy of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. Boy, I can't even get my own taglines right this morning. Kirk, how you doing? Okay, and I think it's this afternoon. It's even that. I'm telling you. <laughs> You're half a day behind here. Uh, too much pollen in the air. I was out uh, trying to clean things up, getting ready for Memorial Day uh, tomorrow. Speaking of Memorial Day, we're going to have a great topic, which is kind of related, as people will see. It's also related to the theme of personal happiness and human flourishing. Well, I am Keith Kendricks, with me Kirk Hastings, and we're going to have a great guest today. We've been having local apologist John Conforti on in several of the past shows, and we've got him on for another topic today about the individual and individual rights. So that is going to be very exciting. Of course, I say that about all the topics, don't I? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. But that's because we pick good topics. That's right. Now, people should check out the website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, and then the word faith.com, where they'll find archived shows. If you prefer podcasts, you can find us on iTunes or Double Twist. Also, check out the Facebook page, which Kirk runs. Kirk, any news on the Facebook page for people? Uh, nothing specific and a bunch of interesting conversations going on. So check it out and take part. All right. And also check out ratiochristi.org to learn more about the Student Apologetics Alliance. Uh, I have a quote. Let me pull this out. I found this in a book that I picked up the last time I was out in San Francisco. Uh, let's see, six months ago or so. I think it was for the Philosophical Evangelical Society meeting. and I hope you paid for the book when you picked it up. Uh, I did pick it up. Yeah, in the, in the airport there, they have a used bookstore. It's pretty nice. Big, it's big. So I picked up an old uh, book by Mortimer J. Adler called Six Great Ideas. And people might know Adler's name because he was a professor at University of Chicago, and he did the Great Books series with the um, Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember those big series of books you could get? I think it was 60, 60 volumes. Oh, yeah. I always wanted one of those, <laughs> and now they don't publish them anymore. No, it's all on- online now. Uh, can you get them? I don't think you can get the actual... 60 books that were in the Great Books series. 
I had understood that uh, if not now, then soon in the future, Encyclopedia Britannica and all those encyclopedias intend to have their books all on the Internet so that you don't have to actually buy the physical books, books anymore. Yeah, maybe. I, I know I've looked – well, maybe you just can't get free versions, so that's my problem. Yeah, you probably have to pay a fee or something to access it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Mortimer Adler, people would be interested in knowing, was not a Christian for most of his life, and he became a Christian. And he was quite the intellectual. Uh, the, and for, for example, this book, The Six Great Ideas, he talks about truth, goodness, and beauty, which are the three transcendentals that we have talked about on the show occasionally, but I'm working on a topic for a future show where we'll go more into more depth on those topics. And the other three, which kind of stem under goodness and are related to today's topic on individual individuality and uh, individual freedoms, the other three ideas were great ideas are liberty, equality, and justice. And without the concept of the individual, it seems like you don't have those ideas themselves, at least not the way we understand them. So, I guess without further ado, let's welcome John Conforti back to Evidence for Faith. John, welcome. Well, it's great to be here again. Thank you, Keith. So this is a great topic. Now, I think people are going to think that, oh, this is a little, it sounds a little esoteric. It sounds a little, you know, up in the air, not really anything that's going to be practical. But that's not really the true, the truth about this topic, is it? Not at all. Uh, the concept of the individual is at the very heart of Western democracy. Um, just look at the difference between us and, say, a country like China, where you have, yes, individual bodies, but they do not value the individual as a as an individual, as we understand it at all, and the individual is merely there in service of the group, in service of the state. And that has been the case for 99% of world history. Mm. Uh, we are an anomaly. And so, yes, I mean, the understanding of what the individual is and the concept philosophically within Western society is crucial to our understanding of our rights and our place in uh, in society. Well, well, what's really wrong with that? I mean, people think about it today. I mean, we, we do hear people telling us that we're a little bit too individualistic. We ought to get along with the program. I mean, we all – it takes a village after all, and we all need to cooperate a little bit more. I mean, for instance, the one thing that all Americans have in common is our government, right? So can't we just get along a little better and start cooperating? Um, I mean, I hear that now. Uh-huh. Well, you, we be more Chinese, in other words. <laughs> um, well, I don't know if we want to be more Chinese. Uh, the there's nothing wrong with uh, getting along, but the difference between a group of individuals getting along and a group having, you know, as its goal, the group as opposed to the welfare of the individuals, is a very important word that I think whether you're liberal or conservative or Christian or non-Christian, can very definitely uh, attach to, and that is the word choice. You have – it is the choice of the individuals to and, – and that is why democracies field the strongest and best armies. It is why they end up generally having the strongest and best uh, internal 
structures morally. Oh, oh. John, you're uh, this is great. You you are getting into some really. This is um, we're way ahead of ourselves, though. Yes, we are. Uh, we. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, sort of jumping again. Yeah. This well, is folks, real, that's it for evidence uh, for faith this week. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're talking about some really advanced. Um, um, evidences and support practical ideas about individualism but i was looking for something more basic like you know um people are saying we're too individualistic and really it comes down to our personal rights our rights to such as um freedom of conscience freedom of speech freedom of assembly all these are based in some way in the idea of the right of the individual. Well, absolutely. If you don't have individuals, then why would you have individual rights? Right. Okay, so that's why this topic is important. That's why it's a great topic. So so let's jump in with both feet, as we, as we already have. <laughs> let's, uh, kind yeah, we're of, we're in up, in up, to, in up to our hips already. So, so let's uh, – why don't you tell us, um, John, a little bit about the history. I mean it seems – so normal to us to think about individuals and individual rights and things like that. But you mention cultures like China and other cultures. Um, it's not so clear that these things are actually important or even necessary. So is that what, what view has reigned historically? To give us a, a historical picture of what most people have thought in most most of the time, and how that's changed over over time, and you know that'll uh, that'll get us off to a good start, and then we'll develop it a little bit more um, to the practicalness of it. Well, first off, the concept of the individual as we understand it was completely unheard of and unknown in the ancient world. Uh, going back into the most the earliest mythologies, for instance, that we have. Uh, access to through archaeology, you have, for instance, the um, the the oldest uh, creation myths coming out of Mesopotamia, um, where you have you know gods, and it's and it's very typical. You they they all of these mythologies have several things in common. They they involve great violence. There's always like this war between the gods. And there's always some sort of sexual component, some sort of procreative act. And then mankind end up, ends up getting created mainly as a slave for the gods. Uh, as a, an example, uh, in Mesopotamian lore, Marduk battles the great dragon Tiamat and chops her up and makes the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars and then takes the blood of her general, Kingu, and mixes it with mud so that they can create man. And the quote is, um, a savage will I create, a savage man to service the gods so that the gods might be at ease. And you notice that he is making mankind out of the blood of his enemy. So mankind is actually is already at odds with the divine here, is, is, you know, is actually part of the enemy camp. Mm, mm. And so man is seen as an enemy of the gods, and so he always has to propitiate the gods, and he is always a slave. But in Egyptian lore, I was like the Egyptian one, actually. The Egyptian gods create the, the heavens, and they create the earth, and then they create cities and temples, 
And then the goddesses notice that there's no one to service the temple. And you sort of like leave it to the women to notice you need to accessorize. <laughs> and they then create mankind in order to service their cities and their temples. And so there's always this under you – know, this the, mankind is always created as a slave. The exception to this, of course, is the ancient Israelites who have a creation story that tells them, no, you are made in the image of God. First off, there is no great war. There is no great cataclysm. And you are created purposely with intent. And you are created and, – and people who study this for a living generally agree that the difference here is that it's mankind's not created to – serve God, to slave to God, but to be in relationship with him, to relate to him. That's why mm. we're created in his image. So, okay, so now let me simplify it a little bit for people. You're not saying that in ancient times people didn't think of themselves as an, an individual person, but they thought of them – but while they thought of themselves, they saw themselves as kind of a cog in a wheel of, or, or, or in a machine. A brick and um, a wall. Yeah. yeah, a brick and a wall, exactly. Like so, so for the Greeks uh, and Romans then, you were essentially the product of the gods. You were the plaything of the gods and you were kind of at their mercy and needed to um, – Everybody had to work together to kind of propitiate them, and if someone upset the apple cart, it could affect you and your crops uh, when the gods rejected what that person was doing. So it's very important that everyone behaved the same way. We had yes. to control others so that they don't wind up upsetting the gods. Right. And a perfect case in point here, because many people think that, well, the Greeks, for instance, created the concept of the individual because they created democracy. But that's not really true because right. they saw democracy as individuals, again, serving the state. And the great case in point, there's two terrific cases in point that leap out at you. One is uh, exactly along the lines of what you were just talking about, and that is Socrates. Socrates was blamed for uh, the loss of the Peloponnesian War because they said that he was doing things differently. He had led the youth of Athens to atheism, to mm -hmm. not propitiate the gods, and to lead the army towards effeminism by not giving them, by not having them believe in the gods, that the gods were behind them. And he was tried and executed for this. And he had no individual rights. He had no uh, you know, right to stand up and say, you know, that this is, you know, this is wrong. I'm being railroaded here, guys. You know, the reason you guys didn't win the war was because you were a bunch of uh, idiots who were trying to all run the show. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they lost the Peloponnesian War, uh, and not none of them had anything to do with Socrates. But yeah. he ended up being the scapegoat, and it was for the good of society that he was put up there to show that if you don't do what the gods say and you don't, you know, then, you know, so Socrates was uh, – the other one was Themistocles who had uh, saved them from the, uh, the Persian invasion. Uh -huh. It was his plan 
that put the three. Everyone knows the three hundred Spartans. No right. one ever remembers there were actually a thousand thespians with the three hundred Spartans. By the way, um, that that were at Thermopylae. Oh, but, that's um, interesting. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, most people don't don't realize that that there were three times as many thespians as there were Spartans. Now I don't know if they were just acting soldiers, or if they were um, you know actually being soldiers. <laughs> but the three hundred Spartans at Thermopylae. But this plan was a three phase plan developed by Themistocles, where they would hold them up at Thermopylae, evacuate Athens to Salmis, and then engage the Persians at sea at Thalmus and uh, at Salmis and wipe the Persian navy out, and that would re- eliminate their ability to supply themselves, uh, supply their army, and they would have to retreat, which is exactly what happened. He saved the city. He had worked on this plan for 12 years, and mm. then after implementing this plan, and he was the great hero, they ostracized him. They they right. actually sent him into exile because he was now too popular. Right. And that wasn't, and that wasn't good for the health of... The unity... Yes, exactly. It, it, yeah, and, uh, and I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading this now. I'm reading the Burning Gates, uh, mm-hmm. which is what um, Thermopylae means. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's cool. This is really really cool. I tell you, yeah. I'm resonating this. I, I you know this is such an interesting topic for me. I just hope that we can uh, share, explain the importance of these concepts as we go along with our our listeners um, who may not have. Have spend as much time thinking about um, these particular things. Right. So you you end up with you know a concept in Greek philosophy of being human dues. We are what we do. Um, we are. Um, Aristotle says that you know like you know a human being can set his own goals and actualize himself and you know, achieve certain things. And if you can't do these things, then you're not human. And we bought into that definition in modern society in many ways, and we get stuck. This is why, um, for instance, the unborn, when we talk about the, um, the, the abortion issue, many people get stuck on this issue, and they don't realize the Supreme Court ruled on a very specific, narrow point. It wasn't whether the the unborn child was alive or not or even whether it was had to do actually whether it was human or not whether it was a person because in the constitution there are only two ways that you can become a citizen of the country right do you, you uh well be born mm-hmm. and be naturalized right and have the unborn been either one of those no oh, that's right and so they're not citizens of the country and therefore they're not entitled to constitutional protections and therefore you can bump them off that was their rule, and most and, and so many people because they don't get this idea of what constitutes a human being. Now, the biblical definition of a human being is if your mama and your daddy were human, you're human. That's it. Hmm. Okay. The the exception, like as in the first time I gave this talk, uh, the pastor at the church raised his hand and said, "Well, what about Jesus?" <laughs> okay, <laughs> Jesus is the exception that proves the rule. Um, he is human in as much as God ca- God created Adam and Eve, and they were human. Okay, so God can create humans. Right. So, in as much as Christ, and he knows God. he knows what the ideal human is like or ought to be like. Exactly. Well, let's remind people that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings, and we are speaking with apologist John Conforti about the idea of the individual and its importance historically 
and to our lives today. So, um, and maybe we our, should mention that one of the ways in which we're tying this idea of human indiv- individuality and human rights into Memorial Day is that's what our soldiers throughout history fought for: our human rights. Yes, our right they to freedom. Did. Yes, this is what they fought and died for, and um, most people don't even realize what it is that they actually did die for. Right. right. And they don't realize how uncommon historically these freedoms have been. Um, you know, even the – you mentioned the democracy of the Greeks, but it's not the same kind of democracy that we had. We have uh, – you know, it was um, basically the democracy of the aristocracy – Yes. So if yes. you were a rich landowner, family member – And uh, a male. And a male, then uh, then you could vote. So not exactly – I mean that's not exactly what we would call um, democracy. Um, the, the kind of free, any qualified person uh, uh, who can vote or any person who's in a group can vote, um, that didn't come later until the, the monasteries uh, began mm-hmm. uh, using that method. And in Athens – just living in Athens wasn't good enough. Even if you had lived there, from your mother and father had to be Athenians mm. in, in order to be considered an Athenian citizen. So just because you moved there didn't get you uh, a vote a, a either. So oh. it was very restrictive. I just realized that I didn't read the quote from Mortimer Adler. I talked about the book. <laughs> hey, I, I, I thought I missed it, but uh, yeah, I, I talked about the had... book. Let me open it back up again because I'm looking. I'm holding the book in my hand. Um, Boy, you're really and, not functioning on all burners today, uh, are you? Currently not. I didn't realize that uh, I wasn't. But get I guess this, this man some caffeine. Week has just got to me as I'm looking at the truth, goodness, and beauty, and then the second three: liberty, equality, and justice. Uh, are dependent upon individualism, but let's go first to this quote because um, it's in part of his introductory material, and it's not as directly related as the the six ideas are themselves. But just for thoroughness, since I said I was going to quote this, it says uh, the truth or falsity of a statement derives from its relation to the ascertainable facts not from its relation to the judgments that human beings make. I may affirm as true a statement that is in fact false. You may deny as false a statement that is in fact true. My affirmation and your denial in no way alter or affect the truth or falsity of the statement that you and I have wrongly judged. We do not make statements true or false by affirming or denying them they have truth or falsity regardless of what we think, what opinions we hold, what judgments we make. And that, again, is from Mortimer Adler. So that's just part of his introductory material on the, the one of the great ideas, the idea of truth. Uh-huh. And uh, we'll be talking in the future about more about truth, goodness, and beauty. But I want to focus on the last three because is liberty important to us? Is equality important to us? Is justice important to us? I don't know if people realize that without the concept, the basic, more basic concept of the individual, um, they, they that makes without the concept of the individual, the idea of liberty 
has a, a much different meaning. The idea of equality, the idea of justice, um, like for the Athenians, it was perfectly just for them to excommunicate whoever didn't get along with the crowd. And this was typical because in the New Testament, just look at me, what, is, what does Caiaphas say? It is better for one man to die, it's more expedient for one man to die than, you know, for the for the for the nation, then the whole nation for the to be punished. You know it, it, this whole concept. What is best for the group? Right. And we would disagree with that. The individual has rights that we will bend over backwards to protect, Why? even to the detriment of society. Where did that come from? You, our claim is that Christianity brought that to the world. Absolutely, because look at what is it that that Christianity focuses on as a religion. Religion, all other religions are built around uh, the people. Even Judaism is built around a covenant with a people, not with a person. And Christianity, for the first time, focuses on the individual, saving the individual soul. And so it is with Christianity that you begin to get philosophers such as Augustine, who was the first guy... To sit down, and as far as we can tell, the first person in the world to think about when you sit down and you are talking to yourself, and you're not praying, so you're not talking to God, and there's no one else in the room, so you're not talking to anybody else, and he questions, who are you talking to? <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of thinking that begins to get prompted because he, 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 that's part of a discussion that he's talking about. You're talking to your soul. You're talking to a person inside your body that needs to be saved. And that is what he's, you know, this, this whole idea of Christianity is, is all about. That you, you are, you are in the business, not of saving countries, not of saving nations, not of saving the world. You're in the process of trying to bring individual people to God. Now, let's, let's uh, take a balanced approach with this because I think the one thing Christianity is is it's very balanced. And while there is this incredible emphasis on the individual, um, there is a balance of diversity within unity. And so you say we aren't reaching the nations, we aren't reaching the world. Well, in a sense, we are, but through... But one person at a time. That's yes. exactly right. And that is crucial. That makes all the difference in the world. And this lays a foundation for human rights that was not in existence before. And if we lose these basic concepts of Christianity in our society, we will, we stand the chance of losing our basic rights because they will no longer have any foundation. They will no longer be seen as important. Mm -hmm. um, in Christianity, liberty has a value all its own. It, it is a value in and of itself. There's a, a verse, I should have looked it up, that says, it was for liberty, I'm sorry, it says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Christ set the individual free for the sake of freedom itself. Yes. That and makes, that elevates freedom to a level that never was in the, in the ancient world. Ever. 
Yes. And 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 the and the New Testament is replete with things like of, of, of sayings like that. For instance, Christ doesn't say, "The truth shall set your nation free," or "The truth mm. shall set your people." The truth shall set you personally free. Right. And I would point if you want to see this balance really in action, um, I would say go to Romans thirteen, which has been used. And abused terribly throughout history, but if you actually read it, it is a very well-balanced, cogent, um, f- f- nice little nugget by Paul where he talks about – this is the one – for those who aren't familiar with the the, the passage when um, Paul talks about let every soul be subject unto the higher powers – and everyone always stops right there and says, "Up, oh, see, you know, you, uh, depending on what political purpose you've got, agenda you've got in mind, you know, either you've got to obey me because I'm the king, or see that, you know, Christians have to be mindless zombies and have to just obey the government. But if you read his whole, that whole section there, uh, for like the, the, those seven or eight verses, he talks about, he says that, um, for instance, that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. So he's implying implicitly that if you've got a genuine leader who's been appointed by God, he will be doing good things. The people will prosper. If he's doing evil things, then he's, he's a usurper. He's not been appointed by God. There's an implicit you know, opposite here. And therefore, we do have an obligation and a duty to rebel against. We owe allegiance, therefore, to God. First and foremost, and so there is that balance where societies, uh, but for society's sake, even though you know one or two, you know, but the rule is not going to be perfect. Mm. Okay, so there's going to be one or two things you may not agree with. Okay, you cannot sit there and dig your heels in against every single thing that you don't think you, you know, the ruler should be doing. Okay. He has, if if overall your people are prospering, if overall he is. Providing, you know, for the will of God, he is following God's law, then you have an obligation for the sake of the unity of the whole. Right. To follow that, follow that ruler. But you have an individual duty to resist that ruler if he is, uh, doing evil in the sight of God. And so right. there is a great passage right there. If you truly digest it and understand it, there's a great passage on that balance. And didn't you just describe in that uh, um, statement that you just made uh, basically what the American Revolution was about? Exactly. You know, yes. and, and, yes. and our founding fathers understood this. Uh, they uh, – let me just uh, – I'll give you our first three presidents, uh, one of which certainly was not a Christian. Thomas Jefferson was, was definitely a deist. Um, George Washington – Reason and experience forbid us to expect public morality in the absence of religious principle. And when they say religion, they definitely mean Protestant Christianity. They really didn't know anything. So they're, you know, that's what they're saying. So in the ab- public morality just does not exist without absent Christianity, according to George Washington. Mm. Uh, John Adams. We have not government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. And this is where we get the concept of self-government. A lot of people today, when you use the term self-government, they think you are talking about a kind of a democracy where, where we are the government. 
But what they're really talking about is self-government. Governing yourself. You govern yourself and then we don't need to govern you. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you keep yourself from stealing, if you keep yourself from lying, if you keep yourself from breaking contracts or cheating uh, other business partners, et cetera, et cetera, then the government doesn't need to be there to stop you from doing it. It's mm-hmm. self-government. And right. the opposite Which, is true also that if you have – a people that are not religious and not moral and are not governing themselves, you can have the biggest government and the biggest police force in the world and they won't be able to keep order. That's right. There which, isn't enough power. Right. Um, which, which is exactly what's happened in France. Yes, and uh, uh, Russia, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So Their uh, revolutions so, ate themselves in the crib because of the the, the base of – those things, which is what Jefferson. I, I just want to read this one quote because it goes exactly to exactly what you were you guys were just talking about. It says, "Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God and they are not to be violated but with His wrath?" Mm. And, and and that's Jefferson, who was a deist. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with apologist John Conforti about the topic of the individual and how Christianity led to the elevation of individual rights. Um, and... The point being that if Christianity goes away, it may very well be that individual rights go away. Now, um, John, let me ask you this. Let me let me pose devil's advocate and say, well, look, John, um, you know, we got a lot of individuality in the United States, and you know, people are doing their own thing. And look at the mess we're in. Uh, I just think that things will work a little better if we would work together more and maybe we just need a little bit more government, a little bit more control, uh, you know, uh, supervision of the markets. And, and you know, after all, uh, we are animals. We're just more developed animals. So what's wrong with having a few zookeepers around to keep an eye on everybody? <laughs> um Interesting enough that uh, they've been asking that question in some form or another since the inception of the Republic. Um, this uh, was a, a question that was taken up by one of the first analysts of the American Republic, and that was Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, many people may be familiar with his groundbreaking work, which was uh, done back in the early 19th century uh, called Democracy in America. And he acknowledged that democracy had exactly these tendencies. He called them um, instabilities. And he saw instabilities in democracy such as uh, it would promote the pursuit of material prosperity over um, – over moral restraint, it would um, promote short-sightedness. You know, in, in policy-making decisions, you know, let, let, let's just get through today rather than long-range planning, um, and things of this sort. Where you know these these instabilities that he saw that in democracy, and he acknowledged in a whole chapter that he has uh, in in that uh, 
a magnificent tome uh, and analysis that in America that problem was solved and only in America was that problem solved uh, because of the strength of the institution of the Christian church in America. And oddly enough, he, uh, he, he, he acknowledged that um, even though the government of the United States had no official religious affiliation, he saw that Christianity was first and foremost the most important political institution in the United States. That is exactly um, what he uh, what, what he called it. He said um, he said religion, uh, Christianity, which among Americans never mixes directly in the government of society, should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions. For if it does not give them the taste for freedom, it singularly facilitates their use of it. And yes. that is because, like you, like, like you were saying, the, the individual is self-disciplined. The individual, it, it, it keeps, he, he noticed that, you know, like, preaching Christianity was not going to sell everyone on the idea of blessed are the poor, okay? But it would, Served, but it served as a restraint against just out and out material, uh, you know, grab, you know, bagging that you, uh -huh. that there were be that there were limits that were right. placed, self-imposed. The government didn't have to impose them. You notice there were very few rules and etc. in uh, in early America right. that you know it was it was self-imposed. Restrictions that there were just some things that people would not do to make a buck, mm -hmm. and as that structure and framework of Christianity has broken down over the course of the past hundred or hundred fifty years, we have needed more and more rules, and it hasn't helped. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the same thing with gun control. There were more guns. Everyone owned a gun back in colonial America. Heck, I remember it, it, times in parts of this country, in the Midwest, after, where you would you would go to high school, you would take your gun to school. You would have it hanging in the back of your truck because you were going deer hunting after school. Right. You know? right. And, no one, and no one ever shot anybody. Why? But now they're going to make sure that no one is free to do that. Mm -hmm. I was uh, speaking to my Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago about this concept of the right of conscience and how it developed from the Christian view of salvation through faith alone. Mm -hmm. That the only way to be a good Christian is by you individually making the decision yourself, not by force. So there's no way that anyone can force another person to be a good Christian. but And that therefore leads to the right of conscience. By definition, we must allow people the freedom to follow their own hearts. But, you know, that isn't true in other parts of the world. You know, Think of the problem that we've had with trying to uh, put a Western-style government in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Where we, you know, I remember George Bush saying in a speech, you know, everyone values freedom. And we think that deep down these people value freedom and liberty. And so if we just give it to them, they'll they'll grab it and go, go with it. Not but you true. know what? Yeah, that just 
isn't true because there isn't this religious background of the need to be free. In fact, they can create a society. We can pass laws that will make you a good Muslim. Right, I can put the five pillars of Islam in encoded into the law of the land, and if you obey those, you'll be a good Muslim. I can take Buddhism and create laws for Buddhists that follow the Eightfold Path uh-huh. and make you into a good Buddhist. But that's not true with Christianity. You can't be forced. So the whole concept of freedom begins to be developed uh, through the Middle Ages and uh, into the establishment of the United States. So when somebody says, you know, that America is a Christian nation, that's what we mean. We mean it's built on Christian ideas, not yeah. that everybody who lives in America is a Christian. And it, and it always, it, it disturbs me a little time when I see, do see some people misusing that phrase when they say that, you know, America is a Christian nation and they're using it in the sense that, America has Christian laws, and America was right. run by the. And no, no, that has never been the case, and that's not generally what is meant by that. It meant it means that it comes out of a Christian culture, and only a Christian culture could produce it. I've known Muslims that have readily admitted that Islam could never have produced a country like the United States, mm-hmm. um, simply because in these other cultures, for instance, in China, and I and I've I've, I've I went to I went to college in Washington D.C., so I got exposed exposure to a great many different cultures, and I, I remember I've spoken to a number of people from that part of the world, and they would get into arguments with me. Sometimes they would say, "For instance, why would you want freedom of the of the press? the The reporters <laughs> the reporters might write something that would make the people unhappy, and why would you want all the people to be unhappy? Right. Why would you want freedom of speech?" Because people might get up and say things that make people angry. Why would you want everybody to be angry? You know, and this is their mentality because they're looking at a top-down system from that it's what's important that the group should be happy, the group should not be angry, and everybody should just go to work, have their, you know, be, have a good time and produce, be productive and Everybody right. will be happy, and that's you know. Now, now let's. Well, our government is always ha- having problems with the Chinese too, because they're always saying the Chinese violate human rights. You need to do better with human rights. But do the Chinese really understand the concept of human rights, or do they even want human rights in the same way that we have them? It sounds right. like they don't. Yeah, right. They they don't even understand what you're talking about, really. You know, as far as they're concerned, they are. They're giving their they're giving their people the best society in the world, where everybody has a purpose, everybody is happy, everybody has a job. Right. What else? What What else could a human being want? Everybody Why has a bicycle. This, <laughs> you know. Right. Yes. So, and and if the idea of salvation by faith alone goes away, that foundation for the idea of the rights of conscience could go away also. Now, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I want, John, you hinted at it at the very beginning. I want to put the nail uh, into the coffin and prove to people why this idea of individualism as part of a, a unified system is better than the top-down approach. You talked about the the um, the army 
and free markets, how do those two things show that the Christian approach is better just on a practical means? Well, just again, as I said, as, as a practical matter, um, an army that has chosen to take the field to fight against a particular evil that it perceives in the world uh, will fight harder, it will fight better, it will be more devoted than any army of any size that has a gun to the back of its head saying you must do this for the sake of your group, you know, and, you know, so that's why I think democracies in general have always fielded the greatest, the, the best armies, and and that... In other uh, words, the, the soldiers that freely volunteer to be a soldier are going to be much better soldiers than the ones who are conscripted by the government to be a soldier. Sure. Possibly and, against their will. Mm-hmm. And just about any military... A professional will tell you that that they would rather have one volunteer soldier than ten conscripts. Now there, there's an additional side to this. Then let me develop it a little bit. There is something about being from the ground up. the The United States Army will beat can beat any army in the world, and it's not just because we have more people or better technology. If you were to create two armies of equal size and equal technology, the American army would beat them without a doubt. There's absolutely no doubt because of the difference that our army is trained to think from the ground up. It is not trained to think from the top down. Other armies are. So the uh, Russian army if something goes not according to plan, do you know that they have to receive instructions from above on what to do next? Oh, yes. But our army is trained not to do that. Our army is trained to think at the individual level. Um, it's almost uh, like an organism where um, you know the individual cells of the tissue are um, making decisions, going through their circuitry and um, doing their part – to contribute to the health of the tissue, and the tissue is doing its part to contribute to the health of the organ. It's it's very much reflects the way God does things. When the individual makes a decision of what I'm dealing with right now as part of the greater whole, we, they so so our army when they get out on the field, they know the ultimate objective, but they also know what they're what's supposed to happen right now at my level. And if something goes wrong, I adapt and I change, and I'm allowed to do that because I'm an individual in this army, and it's my duty to do my job as best as, as I can. I don't wait for orders from above. Individual initiative is valued, and this was seen exactly. on on D Day in 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 France when um, you know all our troops are coming on 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 land, and the German a lot of the Germans units. Could not move. They were they were they were tied down at the port of Calais, uh, several hundred miles away, and they could not move without Hitler's personal order. But they didn't want to wake Hitler up, right? And exactly. but but even the generals could not take individual initiative and said, start getting those troops down there to start defending. And as a consequence, they lost the war. You know. So yes, I mean that is the history is replete with that kind of thing. That when exactly that that. 
that no. individual initiative can make or break a battle or right. And and let's now let's look at a different area. Let's look at the realm of economics. Uh-huh. So much today we hear about the um, top-down economic economic planning and how we need the uh, financial gurus and the government officials to run our economy for us. But that's not really um, the way things work. Actually, free markets, free economies where each individual is individually choosing what product they want and how much to them that product is worth. So, and it's immediately adaptive. It's just like the army uh, situation where each individual, as things change, as let's say uh, an oil rig in the ocean blows up and the oil supply becomes limited, each individual adapting to that problem can immediately solve the issue right away by changing in, and price will reflect those changing demands, those um, uh, and changing supply. And individual initiative, again, plays a huge role. Just look at the 20th century and how many inventions and right. innovations came out of the United States versus how much came out of the Soviet Union. From and the New York. See, and it's not and it's not because uh you know there was a, a disparity say in education because many of the people who invented like uh, uh Thomas Edison had a sixth grade education. Um, Tesla had a fourth grade education. Okay, that didn't make the difference. Improving your education system while may may be helpful is not going to make or break the difference. The difference was these men had incentives and initiative. And the ability the society allowed for them to make individual free choices and we had free markets and if that goes away, if our free markets go away, we will be much worse off. We'll be in a top-down kind of government-run uh, market which just cannot respond in the same way that you know Russian uh, uh, armies cannot respond to right. um, the way we do. And but, preserving all that is what those men and women died preserving uh, throughout our history. All day again. Well, I think I have a statement that's uh, a good one to close this show with, if I may. Yes, wrap it up and put a bow on it for us, Kurt. Okay, here it is. And this is not original with me. I just read this somewhere recently. The best proof that God values the human individual is the fact that in Jesus Christ, God became one. Oh, I love love it. I love it. Thank (laughs) you, Kirk. Well, listen, everyone. Oh, John Comforti, thank you so much for being a guest on. Thank you. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Uh, please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, faith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,